you may need a Bible at some point fairly quickly. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. And we'll be turning in a moment to the book of Second Thessalonians and just continuing our way through that particular book as we do around here. <clears throat> I was reading and thinking of this particular reality. Uh, John Stott once wrote, uh, wrote, history is not a random series of meaningless events. It is rather a series of, or rather a succession of periods and happenings which are under the sovereign rule of God, who is the God of history. I think that's how we really need to look at the world and understand the world in which we live and that there is a God. God is real and that changes everything. One of the ways that we can summarize and will summarize the text that we're looking at as it relates to one who is known as the Antichrist is that we are right now in a time of restraint. That there is a work of God that is holding back the full exposure of evil in our world. That will come, there will come a time of rebellion in which we will see lawlessness increase to a degree which we never ever thought um, we would see. And then there will be time of retribution when Christ comes back and destroys this evil one. I was reminded as I was thinking of that and just working in my head of what's going on this morning that things are not as they seem. We talked about this quite a bit through the book of Revelation. Things are not as they seem. Or better yet, things are not only as they seem. There's a lot more going on than meets the eye. And I think as we come to this particular text this morning, it's a reminder that things are not only as they seem. Uh, we're going to be spending uh, the morning really considering the Antichrist. It seems like a strange topic for a Sunday morning at the end of August, but nonetheless, it's where we are in our text, and we're just working our way through the book of Second Thessalonians, so it's just where the text happens to land us today. As we come to think about the Antichrist, or the Tribulator, as I um, have sort of just made a note in my own, uh, a note to myself about is, as we work our way through this, I do have some things that kind of rattle around in my head, maybe that concern me, I guess, to a small extent, and I, I'm concerned that I stimulate your thinking too much about the Antichrist to the point that that becomes a focus of your thought and study for the next little while rather than Christ. I think it's important that we never forget that Antichrist is less than Christ. Antichrist is not Christ. And therefore, we ought to focus our attention on Christ, the one who is God, um, the one who is coming again, the one who does rule this world right now, the one who does hold our life breath in his hands. I sometimes I'm worried that we have a great deal more interest in trying to understand things about the Antichrist than we do about Christ himself, that we read bigger, fuller, thicker books about the Antichrist than we do about the Christ of scriptures. I don't know fully why God has limited the amount of information that he has given us on Antichrist, but I do know it's for our own good. I was thinking of this in terms of the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus went up to the top of this mountain with Peter, James, and John, and it was a real significant um, moment in the history of the world as, as Jesus went up to the mountain, uh, Moses and Elijah appeared with him, which in itself is astounding. It reminds us that the dead are not dead. Um, but they appeared on the mountain with Christ. 
and Christ shone in all of his glory and his mouth as, as his humanness was sort of pulled aside or as his deity was actually shown. And Peter, in his normal self, said, well, I need to build three tabernacles, one for Moses, Elijah, and you, Jesus. And it's almost as the words were out of his mouth. And in fact, the Bible says he was still speaking when a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I think the point was simply that don't focus on Moses and Elijah. Focus on Jesus. Don't focus on the Antichrist. Focus on the Christ, Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind as we dive through this text. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where you believe something with all of your heart, you've really been convinced of it, and all of a sudden, somebody comes along and with a real strong argument, turns you upside down. And all of a sudden, everything you've thought about, everything you believed, everything you, you had a confirmed conviction about in that particular area, is just, you, you now are alarmed, you're confused, you don't know what you believe anymore. You don't quite understand how it is you never heard what this particular person has exposed you or said to you. And I wonder, well, how does this happen sometimes? Well, sometimes it happens naturally because we learn something that we didn't know before that we needed to know, but sometimes it's just sheer deception. We've been tricked. We've been lied to. What we knew to be true has now been covered or smothered by lies. You think of Adam and Eve in the garden when the serpent came along to them and whispered lies to them and they believed them. When we come to this particular text in 2 Thessalonians, there's a group of Christians that had recently come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And Paul had been teaching them a lot about Christ and about the Messiah and how they were, Jesus was the Messiah. And he had been teaching them a lot about the fact that one day Jesus is coming back again, which uh, we need to hear about and they needed to hear about as well. And so they knew a lot about this and they had Paul's teaching firmly in their hearts and in their minds and no doubt they had had conversations about it. But the scriptures tell us that along came some deceivers. Along came some individuals who claimed to be prophets, who claimed to have a word from the Lord. They claimed to uh, maybe have some new writings that weren't ready at the time that Paul spoke to them or they just discovered them or they even, it seems Paul implies, they counterfeited a letter from him to the point that the letter that they had that was supposedly from Paul said something different than what had Paul had originally told them. And so they were confused. Their world was turned upside down. They were alarmed. They were confused about the reality that the day of the Lord might have already come and they missed it. And so Paul's warning to them is very clear in verse three. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. And in fact, the summary of verses one to three of chapter two are, are simply this, don't be deceived. We live in a world in which there is much deception and that is true even of the religious aspects of the world in which we live. There is a lot of deception. And so Paul is specific in addressing their concerns and their deception as it relates to the coming of the Lord. He says, now concerning the coming of the Lord, the parousia of the Lord and our being gathered to him, don't worry to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come because it will not come until. And that's a real important part of what he's saying. The day of the Lord will not come until two things happen first. The first is a significant event. He calls it the apostasy. 
The apostasy is a, a great rebellion against God. It's a great turning away from God. It, it, while it certainly involves the world in general, I think it also has specific application to the church because Jesus himself speaks of a time at the end of this age in which the love of many will go cold. And so Paul warns them that before Christ comes back, there is going to be this significant apostasy this turning away from faith, affecting largely the covenant people. And you can read about that in Daniel chapter 11, in fact, of the attack particularly on the covenant people, the people of God. So this is a great worldwide turning away from God, but it specifically impacts the church as well, those who profess Christ. He says the second thing, though, that has to happen before Christ is revealed is that the Antichrist, a certain person, must come on the scene of history and he must be revealed. And until those two things happen, the day of the Lord will not come. And so Paul is working to set them straight about that. He's working to put them at ease about that. He's working to correct the deception and the lies that they have heard about that. Certainly the day of the Lord is coming. We know that. The scripture is very clear about that. The day of the Lord is coming. And for those who don't know Jesus, it will be like a thief in the night. It will be a shock. It will catch them off guard. Much like the flood and the rain caught the unbelieving people of Noah's day off guard. They believed nothing. They, didn't, they were marrying. They were drinking. They were eating. They were doing all the things they normally do until the door to the ark was shut and the rains came down. And so the coming of the Lord will be like a thief in the night to those who are perishing. But we are not of the night, loved ones. We are of the day. And because we are of the day, that day will not take us by surprise like a thief. We belong to the day. This doesn't mean when we say that, that the coming of the Lord is a long way off. The Bible describes it again and again as something that is near, something that we are to watch for, something that we are to wait for, something that we are to look for, something that we know is on the horizon. The Bible tells us again, the Lord is near or the coming of the Lord is at hand. It tells us much about what will take place between the time when he first came when he was born and the time when he's gonna come back a second time. It's not that we're in the dark about that. You read Matthew chapter 24 and you can read a lot about the events that will take place among people, the events that will take place in the earth itself as there are earthquakes and, and traumas, the earth, the things that will take place in the heavens, the fact that there will be wars and rumors of wars. There's a whole bunch of descriptions that will characterize these last days in which we live. We read some of them even last week from 2 Timothy and from 1 Timothy. So the coming of the Lord is near. But as Paul says, it will not take place until the apostasy and the man of lawlessness are revealed. Last week, we ended at verse 3 much I probably would have liked to say about the apostasy or that period of time in this week. I just want to spend some time looking at verses four uh, to eight specifically, which focus on the Antichrist. If you have your Bibles open, Second Thessalonians chapter two, I want to read from verse one to verse eight, just so you have a sense in your minds of where we're going. 
Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Four words uh, this morning that I think describe this text. Uh, The first one is the man of lawlessness described. Uh, The second uh, word that we'll consider is his restraint. He is restrained. Uh, The third is he will be revealed. And the fourth is that he will be destroyed. Four simple words. The first one he's described. You heard that when we read verse four, the description of this particular individual that will come onto the scene of history at the end of this age. He's described certainly in four different titles maybe that Paul gives him. One is the man of lawlessness, the antinomium, the one who is against law, anti-law. He rejects authority. He rejects law. He, he considers himself above the law. He considers God's law in specific has no application to him or his rule or his authority. So he is a man of lawlessness. He's also the doomed one, the son of destruction. I think what that points to simply, his destiny is ruin. He's not here for a a long time, maybe for a good time, but not a long time. He's gonna be destroyed. The third is that he's an opposer or an adversary. He will oppose anyone and anything that stands in his way, even God. And fourthly, he is a self-exalter, blatant self-exaltation. Blatantly, he will describe himself as above all religion, above all authority, as the one who himself and alone should be worshiped. He, he sets himself even above God himself. He opposes every and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He will set himself again against any and all religions or objects of worship, not just God. He will set himself over them all and set himself against any who might stand in his way. And you think, well, that's pretty far-fetched, Paul. Well, no, it's not. We see this in the world in which we live even now. We, we, we look at some of the leaders around the world and we say, they're just completely lawless. There's no restraints anymore on them. There's nothing constraining them anymore. They're just a law unto themselves. And and sometimes we listen to them, we think, really? You think that much of yourself? We would almost call, and we do call some of them, narcissistic, even in the day and age in which we live. So it's not far-fetched to realize that at the end of this age, there is one coming who will encapsulate all of them in a way that we will say, whoa, He will be adversarial, just like his, the power behind him. Satan is called our adversary. He moves around like a roaring lion seeking those that he might destroy. 
His exaltation, his self-exaltation will be without rival. Look at me. And consider uh, Nebuchadnezzar on the plane when they had that plane just jammed with, with people and that golden idol was set up and they all bowed down and worshiped. Well, think of that on a global scale. That will be this individual that will finally be revealed at the last day. He will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That particular phrase has caused no end of confusion for people in the church. I'm not necessarily gonna unconfuse your mind, but I think I know where I stand at least on that or where I think I lean and where I'm headed on that. I think the arrogance behind this individual though is still breathtaking, proclaiming himself to be God and taking his seat in the temple of God. I think that's the church. I think that's what that is a reference to when he says he, when Paul says he takes him seat in the temple of God. In the New Testament, the temple of God always refers to Christ or the people of God. In Revelation 13, verse six, it says there that the sea beast attacks believers depicted as the tabernacle. And so the church, as we know it, is the body of Christ. It's the temple of God. And uh, I, I think what is Paul is saying here, I, at least how I understand this, is that this particular individual, this antichrist, is sitting figuratively over the church. It's not a specific building in which he sits as much as he is providing, presiding over the laws and the morals that impact the church. He will be the de facto sort of lawgiver, leader, of the church, set himself up in the church, a place of authority, and he will set himself up above all gods and all objects of worth, worth, worship, we read. He will seek to be the ultimate lawgiver, and the law that gives his law will give contradiction to all of God's laws as they're revealed in the Bible. And you say, well, how can that take place, Paul? Well, it's taking place now in the church today. There are churches that no longer believe that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. We've thrown out the definition of the biblical definition of worship in places where they profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. In churches today where people profess to be followers of Christ, a view of sexuality has been thrown out the window now. There's not just male and female, but there's multiple other expressions of gender. The view of scripture now is no longer believed in all of those churches that profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. This is just a book that is a good guide to us. But there's some parts of it that we, shouldn't, uh, we don't need to believe. There's some parts that are contextual and so they're of a period of time that don't apply to us today. So even the Bible is now not considered the final authority. There are churches today in which the sanctity of human life is no longer upheld amongst which abortion at the beginning of life and euthanasia at the end of life is allowed in certain circumstances, in certain settings. These are situations and circumstances that are already taking the law of God as we have it and turning it on its heels. Already this is happening in the church. So it's not so far-fetched to think that at some point there's gonna be some that will set someone that will set himself up over the church in this particular way. We have within our churches already those that would say, well, there, Christ isn't really the only way to God. He's a, he's a good way and he might be the best way, but all faiths actually lead to God in one way or another. And so we don't recognize anymore that 
There is no other name in which one might be saved other than Jesus Christ. So Paul is suggesting that he takes his seat in a place in which he appears to have dethroned God himself, even amongst those who profess that God is their Lord. Can we identify him? Should we try to identify him? I think the answer from a biblical point of view is no. I think we need to be very careful here, loved ones, that we not be obsessed with trying to identify this person ahead of time. Rather, we should understand what the Bible says about him and go no farther than that, but recognize that when he appears on the scene, we'll say, of course, that's who the Bible describes. And that will happen when he is revealed. We won't reveal him. God will reveal him. There has been those many antichrists in this world to this point. John tells us that. There have been many antichrists, but there is coming a final antichrist. In the king of Babylon described in Isaiah 14 or the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28 or Antiochus the, the fourth, which described in Daniel, I think is probably comes the closest to getting a sense and a feel of what the Antichrist will be like. This one particular man that came up in about 160s, 167, somewhere in that time BC and was just destructive and evil. But John tells us that there will be many antichrists. And in fact, Jesus seems to even say of Antiochus IV that he was a forerunner of the coming antichrist. And I think we get a picture of him described in his fullness. Um, certainly we see bits of this, but in the fullness of him in Revelation chapter 13, verses five to eight, there it says, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheme his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name is not written in the, or before the foundation of the world in the book of the life or in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. This is him described. In a nutshell, he will attempt to dethrone God himself. Secondly, he's restrained, though, at the moment. This, this is a word that's used a couple times in there. Paul has already told the Thessalonians, and we need to listen to this, that, that these things will, will increase. There, there, there will be a, a, the mystery of lawlessness, he says, is already at work until it will finally be exposed in the final apostasy. The, the Antichrist, even the final Antichrist, may be present now, but we don't know that and won't know that until he is revealed. So these things are already at, taking place, but there's a restraint straining power on them right now. That's what Paul says very clearly. Why has the Antichrist not been revealed? Because he's being restrained. Why has this time of apostasy not happened yet? Because it's being held back. There's a very clear timeline that Paul describes for us here in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He, he, will, he will be restrained until his time. That is massively encouraging from so many points of view. And until his time, whose time? God determines when his time is. It's just like in the fullness of time, 
God sent forth his son. God is in control of history, every single event of history. He was in control of the creation of the world. He was in control of when the, when the fall happened through Adam and Eve. He was in control when Christ was sent to this earth. He was in control when Christ died, when all the, the powers and authorities were around him to kill him. Uh, they all did that according to the predetermined counsel of God. And God will be in control when Satan, through the Antichrist, is revealed. So he will be restrained until his time, but he's already at work secretly. And he's now restrained, and this restraint will continue until it's removed. Then the lawless one will be revealed, and then Christ will destroy him by the appearance of his coming. There's a very clear time frame and timeline and description of the day in which we live right now. The difficult part is, in verse six, trying to understand the repaining, the restraining power. What is holding him back, restraining him in verse six? In verse six, it says, and you know what is restraining him. <laughs> really? Well, they, they knew because Paul had told them about it. He says as much in verse five. He says, I told you these things, and so you know what's restraining him right now. But in the church, it's been a considerable issue of discussion. And then in verse seven, it says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. So the question is, well, what is the restraining power and who is the restraining person? What is it that's holding back lawlessness right now in this final apostasy? Who is it that is holding back this man of rebellion, this final antichrist until he is removed from the scene and the antichrist is exposed? Well, this is not an easy thing. And I'm not going to answer all your questions and I'm probably not going to satisfy you with the answer that I give. I was thinking of what Augustine wrote many, many years ago, back in 300 sort of AD. He says, I frankly confess I do not know what he means. <laughs> Augustine was a brilliant man and I don't want to profess to be anywhere close to Augustine. Let me point out a couple things about what we do know and then give you a hint at how I understand this. By the way, there's about seven views that are given. That's a lot of views. So that tells us we ought not to be too fixated on determining the restraining power or the restraining person. Uh, first of all, whatever it is or whoever it is, both are presently working right now. They're restraining lawlessness. They are restraining the Antichrist. The full outbreak of rebellion has not occurred yet because they are restraining it. Secondly, the restraining influence is both a something, an it, and a someone. Got to take that in, into account. There's a something that's holding back lawlessness, and there's a someone who is holding back the Antichrist. Most likely, that is uh, the, the, the power and the person are good, not evil. Of those seven views, there's a couple that say, well, it's an evil power at working in tandem with lawlessness. It's an evil person working in tandem with the lawless one. I don't believe that. I think the restraining power is good. At the right time, both the something and the someone will be removed, unleashing this final apostasy and opening the door for the revelation of the Antichrist. Fifthly, God is ultimately the power behind whatever it is. Know that, loved ones. Don't lose sight of that. 
Don't live in fear. Know that God is in control. We might not be able to figure out all the details. We can't figure out all the details, but we know the one who knows every single detail. And then just in my own thinking, there's gotta be some good reason why the scripture doesn't make it absolutely clear who this restraining person is and what this restraining power is. Now, having said that, here's my take on it. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? But I don't think we can't think it through. Um, I think we just can't be dogmatic about it. Um, the way that I look at it is I believe that at this point in my wrestling with this, and I have for some time, I think the restraining power is the proclamation of the gospel. And the reason I believe that the restraining power is the proclamation of the gospel is very strongly connected with Mark chapter 13, verse 10, where Jesus said, this power or this gospel must first be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. God in his plan has a purpose for his gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And until that happens, the end will not come. And so in my thinking, that's at least a good candidate for this restraining something. As I consider the restraining person, there, it's a little bit of a, a sort of a mix. Um, ultimately, I think the restraining person is an angelic being. And I'll point that out in a minute, why I think that. And that angelic being works through those who proclaim the gospel. So initially, Paul would have been the restraining person. As he preached the gospel, he held back the gospel, not Paul, but the gospel held back the revelation of the Antichrist. And then as we, Paul goes off the scene, obviously when he went off the scene, the Antichrist wasn't revealed, so he couldn't be the final restrainer. Uh, others have come who also step in those shoes and proclaim the gospel. And as the gospel is proclaimed as a restraint on the revelation of the Antichrist. Enabled though by the angel who represents God's sovereignty in making the gospel proclamation effective, remember the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And so I tie that together just so you understand where my thinking goes and I just give this to you only for you to think through, not, well, for that reason. Revelation chapter 20, I think, is significant in understanding the restraining something and the restraining power. Revelation 20, verses one to three. I, this believe, I believe this takes place at the beginning of the end of the ages when Christ was born and during Christ's coming, his first coming. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Listen to this. So that, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. You read about the deceiving power of Satan in the Old Testament. How nations could not hear the gospel, how Israel itself was blind to the gospel. And so Satan was bound. Christ says, I saw Satan fall from heaven. He was bound and he is bound presently 
so that the gospel can have success and the gospel can reach to the end of the ages. But then you read down in verse seven, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. There it is again, this, this released to deceive, the release to, to once again empower the Antichrist and the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for a battle. The number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. That's my take on it. Think it through. Um, the important point is to understand there is a something that is restraining lawlessness and there is a someone that is holding back the revelation of Antichrist. Until such a time as that power and that person is revealed or made known, put your confidence in God. Trust God. Do not be alarmed. Do not be deceived by someone who may come along and say, ah, God, is, Christ has already come back. Find your hope and strength and help in the word of God. Amen. Consult the word of God, not the latest book on the Antichrist, not the latest book on the end times. Dive into the Bible. Uh, Alistair Begg is often heard to say the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. That is one of the best guides to reading your Bible that you will ever hear. The main things are the plain things. They're clear in scripture. The plain thing or the main things are the plain things. The things that really, really matter are plain. Don't focus on Antichrist. Focus on Christ. Focus on the real thing. It's going to be revealed uh, simply. Remember Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, or verse 7, where it says that... Um, Christ is going to be revealed from heaven. And what did we talk about when we said Christ is going to be revealed from heaven? The veils are going to be pulled back. We are going to see Christ in all his glory, in all his power, in all his might. We are going to see the perfection of humanity, the, the perfection of his humanness. We are going to see him in all of his fullness and might and power and glory. That's what it means that Christ is going to be revealed from heaven. And so in the same way, when the Antichrist, when his time is here, he will be revealed in all his ugliness, in all his evil, in all his harmful ways, in all his opposition to God and the people of God. He will be revealed. It will be pulled back, so to speak. It's a significant event, both in its timing and its reality. And when he is revealed, loved ones, there will be no doubt as to his identity. We may have trouble trying to identi identify him before then, but when he is revealed, it, we will not be in doubt. If we are part of that generation in which the apostasy takes place and the Antichrist is revealed, we will not sit back watching our TV or listening to our podcast saying, I wonder if that's the guy. You will know. Finally, he will be destroyed. Sorry, I'm almost done. Um, he will be destroyed. Verse eight is just a beautiful verse. 
It says, when the Antichrist is revealed, whom the Lord will kill with a breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Or as the Christian standard for us, the Lord Jesus will destroy him with a breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing by the brightness, brightness of his coming. One thing I want you to realize is, notice there is no description of the interim time between the time the Antichrist is revealed and the time he is destroyed. I think that points to a couple of things. One, I think it points to a short time, and the Bible would attest to that, that unless those days were cut short, not even the elect would have survived. So I think it's a short time. The point, though, is not what takes place in between the revelation of Antichrist and his destruction. The point is, he's destroyed. No sooner is he revealed, no sooner does he come onto the stage of history, no sooner does he try and dethrone God than Christ appears in all his brightness, in all his glory, in all his power, in all his might, and poof, he's done. He comes to nothing. All his talk, all his posturing, all his pronouncements, nothing in light of the real thing, in light of the real Christ. Again, notice the timing, the revelation of the man of lawlessness, then the coming of the Lord. Notice the overwhelming power of the Lord and the destruction of the man of lawlessness. We, in the world, from our perspective, we will look at him and think, wow, look at his power as he slaughters people, as he takes over institutions, as he determines directions, as he changes social structures. But he'll be destroyed by the breath of Jesus' mouth. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a word in Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 13 and 14 to you and I, loved ones. I won't point out what I think is the obvious, but the reminder is that, so how do we live? How do we survive? What do we do in the present as we're waiting for God to reveal and remove these restraints? But we keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of Christ. We live for him until he appears. We serve him until he appears. We obey him until he appears. Daniel chapter 11 is necessary to read alongside this, particularly verses 36 to uh, the end. I think it's verse 45. In there, before that, starting at verse 20 or so, Daniel gives us a picture of the most evil little antichrist that the world has known so far, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he does that, I think, to give a foreshadowing, a scale model, if you will, of what the final Antichrist will be like. The final opponent of the people of God. And he will be much worse and much more than the Antiochus IV. But what particularly caught my attention was verse 45 of Daniel 11, the very end, when he describes this final Antichrist, this final king, where he says, but he shall come to an end with no one helping him. Six Hebrew words, done, gone, 
off the scene of history, relegated to the lake of fire. It's the exact same thing that Paul describes here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, that he will be destroyed with a breath of Jesus' mouth and he will come to nothing by the splendor of his appearing. This man who will rise to significant on the world stage is dealt with by a breath of the Lord's mouth. It's wiped off the stage of history. It's as if the Lord says to us and to those in Daniel's time and for all Christians who live, it's as if the Lord says to us, you must be prepared. In this world, we will have tribulation. We will face affliction and suffering. But don't think too much of the tribulator. Don't think too much of this antichrist. For though he may be dreadfully terrifying, he will be easily disposed of. Can you imagine that kind of power? Uh, Was it Mina was asked by the little child, is Jesus' power real? He's gone. That should put steel in our bones in case we have to face the final scourge of history. Jesus wins, hands down, every time. God is in control of history. May God encourage us in these days in which we live. Father, we come before you today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you do reveal to us. Help us to be content with what you reveal to us, Father. To dive into and learn what we can from what you've recorded, but not to be enamored with things that you haven't told us. Not to be confused or alarmed or easily deceived by things that purport to be in your word but aren't and to purport to come from your people but don't. Father, help us to be those who are happy simply to be people of the book and to have that book guide and direct our lives until Jesus appears. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.